I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is a little different. It's Bill Morgan, who served as archivist for Allen Ginsberg and some of the other beats for the last 20 or so years. And we're going to be talking about a book that just came out in paperback, The Best Minds of My Generation, A Literary History of the Beats, that Bill put together by compiling and synthesizing and winnowing through many lectures that Alan gave in teaching a course about the history of the Beats. And then I'll be talking about another collection of Alan's work, Wait Till I'm Dead, the uncollected poems of Alan Ginsberg. Again, compiled and edited, a group of poems that spans Alan Ginsberg's entire career. Stick around. It's going to be a good one. And this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our guest today is Bill Morgan. He has the distinction of being the archivist for Allen Ginsberg and many of the beat writers. And he is here today because we're going to talk about a couple, about a new book just out in paperback, The Best Minds of My Generation, A Literary History of the Beats. It just is out in paperback from Grove Press. And he's also, uh, among his 40 books, he edited Wait Till I'm Dead, the uncollected poems of Allen Ginsberg. Another really, really good collection. So, uh, Bill, I'm really glad you're here, and we can talk about this. This is great. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I, I wouldn't be bad to just start um, where the best minds start, which is uh, talking about defining the beats. Um, what, from what you get out of it, what Alan had to say, uh, what are the beats? <laughs> That's always the first question, and everybody has a different answer. And I'll tell you my answer is the correct answer. The beats are basically anyone who was a friend of Allen Ginsberg. It's not a style of writing, it's not a philosophy, it's, uh, it's truly a group of people who gathered around Allen beginning in the 1940s at Columbia University uh, became close friends. It expanded when he went to San Francisco. And uh, ever since then, everyone associated with Allen has been considered a member of the Beat Generation. Even people who write in a similar way, uh, if they weren't a friend of Allen's, are not considered a, a Beat. And so that's why someone like Charles Bukowski who really fits into that mold of the beats, yeah. is never considered a beat writer, never discussed in that way. Uh, but someone who I, I think is completely different, like Gary Snyder, was a close friend of Alan's, and he's considered a beat writer. You're, that's a really cool... That's right. Absolutely correct. Well, and, and that's also why there weren't very many women in the beat generation, because Alan was kind of a, a member of a boys' club, you know, uh, and didn't have a lot of female friends early on, and so there are no women yeah. of the Beat Generation, with the exception of Diane De Prima, who was yeah. a friend of Allen's, and, uh, and then later Anne Wallman, right? Yeah. And again, a close friend of Allen's. Yeah, and it's I always think of Waldman, and I guess maybe Ed Sanders is like a slightly next generation, but they're not a whole generation apart. 
Yeah, well, or it depends. Uh, someone like William Burroughs, who is a member of the Beat Generation mm. for sure, was older. Lawrence Ferlinghetti was older. So, uh, Anne and Ed are of the next generation in that way. So, you, you have the inclusive kind of definition, because I've also heard people say the Beats are Alan, Gregory, Burroughs, Kerouac, and that's it. That's it. Yes. Have you heard that? Oh yeah, Gregory Corso used to like to say that that there were four daddies, and he of course okay. included himself as one of the four daddies. Yeah. Uh, but I think that I think it's a wider group than that, and it's always anthologized as a bigger group. Yeah, definitely. Um, Walden, well, you said it wasn't how they write, but I pulled something out of the introduction just because I guess I found it interesting. That Alan said the modus operandi of the beat literary movement is inquisitiveness into the nature of conscience with literature as the holy means. <laughs> yes, that sounds like Alan, doesn't it? And, yeah. <laughs> and you could certainly say it's true, but you could say that about almost every writer worth their salt. <laughs> oh, looking for the heart of the heart of the matter. What about the beatnik thing? I think I think some people today don't don't distinguish between beatnik and beat, and uh, I think there's a difference. Oh right, and there certainly was at that time. I mean, the stereotype of the beatnik is almost exactly opposite of the stereotype of many of the beat writers. Take someone like Jack Kerouac, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, the typical beatnik would be someone who would never work. Well, Kerouac was a serious writer wrote every day, all day. Uh, he preserved his writings. He lived with his mother uh, for his entire life. Uh, definitely not the stereotype of the Maynard G. Krebs character that we grew up with, uh, who, who was what people thought of with beatniks. Uh, and, and basically, Alan discarded that. Uh, he didn't run away from the word beatnik, but he knew that the, the social movement of the beat or the beatnik wasn't what he and his writer friends were all about. I was considered a sort of flippant, you know, kind of smart-ass term from the journalists. Exactly. It was coined by a columnist, uh, Herb Kane, in San Francisco. And he had overheard Bob Kaufman, a, a pretty well-known San Francisco poet, talking in a bar one night, and he was, uh, he was talking about Sputnik at that time, around 1950. Uh, seven when the Russians sent the the first satellite into space, yeah. and he was playing with words and playing with beat and Sputnik and Bob Kaufman said we're just beatniks and Herb Kane put that in print in his column and then it stuck because it sensationalized it and kind of belittled them as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have to keep in mind that what they did have in common. Uh, 90% of them, let's say, was they were on a spiritual quest. They were not uh, atheists or even agnostics. They were really looking for something, a spiritual center in their lives. So that was typically not what a beatnik would be interested in. Uh, like I said, a beatnik would be interested in doing nothing and uh, would be so cool that they wouldn't produce anything. Yeah, or just The just... beats were... The beat writers were hot. They, right. as, as opposed to being cool, they were, they were hot. They were always looking right. for something, striving for something. 
uh, that that reminds me of, of course, the distinction of uh, the hot and cool jazz back then, and and the the influence you got. There's some sections in the book that talk about the the, the role of jazz. Yeah, I thought that was one of the major things that Alan spoke about in, these were from lectures that he gave, and the fact that originally what they were doing was trying to reproduce jazz, the jazz of the 1940s, in a, a verbal way. Uh, the musicians had done it in a musical way, and they wanted to write like jazz mu musicians played, so they would go on riffs and... Uh, and make up words and phrases uh, to, to to kind of equate uh, jazz with literature. And then it took a funny turn in the very end that I didn't even know about, and, and Alan wrote about it, and that was where the jazz musicians took their work and turned it back into music, mm -hmm. so that uh, Dizzy Gillespie produced something that he called Kerouac. He had never met Jack Kerouac, but because of Kerouac's work, he turned that back into music. So kind of an interesting circle. Yeah. And then some of the people were, were working with with the jazz combos like Rex Roth and... Uh... Right. They tried that. Uh, and Rex Roth was pretty successful. And uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti did quite a bit of it. But Lawrence always said that it wasn't as successful because people either wanted to hear the music or hear the words. But they didn't. Uh, he felt that even though he did it quite a bit for a few years, uh -huh. that it wasn't quite successful for poetry. Yeah, the music can be distracting. E exactly. Yes. Or else just irrelevant, or just pointless. You right. Don't, don't need it. The poems. Good. I think with all performance poetry, you have the issue of is the performative stuff really adding anything, or yeah. would it be better to just focus on the poem? Right, and I think if someone did both, like David Meltzer. Would uh, in also a poet in San Francisco would compose the music that would go with it, but usually it was just a jazz musician uh, who was interrupted then by the poetry. <laughs> interrupted by the poetry. But okay. you know, one of the things Alan was saying when he talked about his process, I, I found uh, to me very interesting because I hadn't run into him talking his poetics. Before maybe it's in other books, but now actually everything we're we're talking about when you're you're basically relaying what Alan had to say about things, correct? That's pretty right. Except for your definition of beat, <laughs> that's right, which is totally <laughs> correct. Okay, but, but he he had this little thing where he talks about uh, shifting from internal babbling to an external actuality, and then that was a either a common thing or a major thing in writing poems, and, and he consciously did that. Yeah, he, he wanted to graph, graph what the mind uh, was thinking, and that sounds like it would be awfully easy to do until you start to do it, and it's very difficult because you think on many different levels at the same time. So how do you put that onto a piece of paper and make it comprehensible to people? So I think that's what he was trying to do, to take those, the inner words in his head and put them on paper. He always used to say that if mind was shapely, art would be shapely. Yeah. And that comes from that kind of thing. That uh, Not everybody could just do that because most of the time your thoughts were scattered. But if you could concentrate and focus your mind, 
uh, then the art would be yeah. focused. Actually, in a couple of places in here, um, I had associated him with Robert Bly's concept of leaping, but it sounds like he's talking about leaping uh, in your writing, going from disparate, you know, putting disparate things together, and that, that kind of idea. Right, and some of the writers really did that, like Gregory Corso, really took contradictory words and thoughts and put them together to make something completely new and different. Yeah. Quite yeah. a trick. Yeah. You said you didn't want to read any poems, but I'd like to read a short one, which does this thing he talked about of going from whatever out there to coming into something concrete. He claimed, I never heard him read this, he claims in here, he read it um, a lot of times. It's an early poem and he read it a lot of times called Marijuana Notation. Oh, uh, yes. Here we go. This is Allen Ginsberg talking to you. How sick I am. That thought always comes to me with horror. Is it this strange for everybody? But such fugitive feelings have always been my meteor. Baudelaire. Yet he had great joyful moments staring into space, looking into the middle distance, contemplating his image in eternity. They were his moments of identity. It is solitude that produces these thoughts. It's December almost. They're singing Christmas carols in front of the department store down the block on 14th Street. Yes, that's, that's Alan at his best. And one of his earliest publications as well. That uh, was he was following William Carlos Williams' idea of saying that no idea but in things. So you can really identify the the department store down the block. It's on 14th Street, in New York, and everything has a has a basis in reality. He's not writing about uh, intangibles. Yeah, I, I, this one I came to. I thought it was such a great example of this. As if people don't get it, this idea that he was talking about, he's sort of like mind babble, and then you, bam, slam them into reality. And that poem is such an, is an example of it, for sure. You know, just that, that transition to that last little stanza is really something. And the title gives it away, too. Yeah. Alan, Alan wrote a lot of poetry on different drugs. He was never addicted to anything. He, he did truly yeah. experiment with things. Uh, and that was one that he wrote while experimenting with marijuana. Yeah. The other thing I recall, uh, when I lived in D.C., uh, I attended a little like afternoon workshop that he did at the local Shambhala Center. And the biggest thing from that was I learned how much he, he, he was so happy that he thought of hydrogen jukebox. Oh yes. I mean, I was thinking this many years later, and he just he just loved it, and that's what he had the group do as a workshop activity. You pick a word like candlestick, and then you would just make a big long list of things real fast of you know, drink water candlesticks, microphone candlestick, you know, coffee mug candlestick, and you just. Do that, and then see if something interesting came out, and see what sticks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If all that stuff, there's something you go, oh, that's pretty interesting, right? And in the poem, Alan experimented with different ways of, of combining uh, hydrogen and jukebox, and other words were in between, but that's the one that stuck. And I think he was right. That's quite a phrase. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really cool. 
Uh, Gregory Corso did that quite a bit, and that was one of his his hallmarks. Really, he would do uh, <coughs> excuse have things like penguin dust <laughs> and swindler esque ink, right. uh, putting words together that you would never think of, and then the more you think of them, the more you can visualize. Although no one knows what penguin dust is, right. it makes it creates something. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was you have these two different things, but when you put them together, it's it's a new thing. Yes, exactly. A completely new thing. Yeah, that's, that's just really, was really cool. I will never forget that aspect of the workshop. In fact, that's the only part I remember. Maybe that was the whole <laughs> workshop. <laughs> he also said that, um, his, he mentions his process was, I don't know if always or often, doing a lot of just scribbling it down in his notebook and not worrying about it being a poem or whatever, or a journal entry, or not even giving it a name maybe. And then later you go back and see what's there. And sometimes there would actually just be a poem. Well, exactly. And that's where the poem you read, uh, Marijuana Notation, came from. It was actually prose. These things were written in his notebook uh, in the 1940s and 50s. And Alan was, Alan's poetry was very formal and based on earlier uh, writers like uh, Christopher Smart. Uh, and... Alan sent some of those poems to William Carlos Williams, and he said, no, that you're really missing it. What else do you have? So Alan took a few things out of his notebook that he had written as prose and rearranged them, sent them to Williams, and Williams said, yes, now you've got it. That's exactly right. So Alan went back uh, like a miner, uh, you know, mining yeah. things from his notebook, uh, rearranged them, uh, cut out a lot of the words, but basically uh, created a poet a poem out of a, something originally that was uh, just in his notebook as a yeah. note. Great. Yeah, and some of and some of the best poetry of that period comes from that idea. Alan, throughout his whole life, though, changed uh, his styles and his ways of doing things. Uh, so he was always experimenting. But th those yeah. early ones are basically uh, prose notations. Yeah. I don't know why, but I was I was a little surprised at how much influence he uh, attributed to Williams. Yeah, well, Allen was from the same area in New yeah. Jersey. Uh, Patterson was where Allen was raised, and Williams wrote his most famous poem, Patterson, sure. uh, but lived next door in Rutherford, New Jersey. And Allen knew Williams because uh, Allen's father was a poet, Louis Ginsburg. And, in fact, when Alan began writing poetry, he said, I'm going into the family business. Uh, but they were, they were friends, his father especially, of uh, Williams. And then, as Alan became more of a poet, more famous, he became very close to uh, Williams. What about Kerouac? Actually, folks, this book that you're not looking at, that I am, includes... Uh, these are lectures that Alan gave at Naropa Institute, and it was at Brooklyn College... At Brooklyn uh, College really yeah. and at Naropa. Yeah, Naropa he yeah. did this five times. He taught the beach, the history class. of yes. Yeah, these are like his lecture notes. But you kindly went through and took out the redundancies. <laughs> <laughs> that, yes, that was that was the hardest part was to sift through the fact that he said something five times and pick out the best yeah. of the five. Yeah. Oh, what, a, what a job. It was a lot of transcription. Yeah. But there are sections in here about uh, Corso and a number of chapters about Kerouac. What about Kerouac? He really thought Kerouac was, was a, a brilliant writer. 
Oh, this yes. true? Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, and Alan was dedicated to Kerouac. And in fact, I'd go so far as to say we might not even know about Kerouac today if it weren't for Alan. After Kerouac's death, his books all went out of print. Uh, and no one was interested in his writing. And it was really through Alan's determination to keep his name alive that brought books back into print. And now we think of him as one of the great writers. But he really had a, a big 10-year period there where nobody cared about him. He was considered the town drunk in Lowell and Massachusetts. Uh, but Alan was devoted to him and to his writing. And they met in college. Jack Kerouac was the first real writer that Alan said he ever knew because he had written, Alan always said, a million words by the time Alan met him as a student at Columbia. And this impressed Alan. And you can see also in their letters to each other how they focused on writing and talked about writing and thought about writing. Uh, like I said earlier, real professionals, yeah. uh, not just playing around, yeah. but really thinking about what they were doing. Now, among your books, did you did you put together their letters? Yes, the letters There's between Kerouac and Ginsburg, and was that's that, it's was, an enormous book. <laughs> was, was that one called? Do you remember? Uh, it's just called Letters. Okay. <laughs> <And> <laughs> It'd be easy enough to find if it's right. between the two of them, yeah. One thing I always like to tell people, I've done, I've done around 40 books, and only once has the publisher agreed to the title that I had picked for a book, and it, it's the Wait Till I'm Dead title. Oh. Uh, That's a great but, title. Yeah. But all the other times they have changed the title or had their own title, and I've never wanted to argue since they're yeah. the publisher. Yeah, right. But when they picked letters, I thought, this is pretty presumptuous. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's a quote from Alan, I know. It's in a poem, Wait Till I'm Dead. That's, yes. He, yeah. he, he wrote to some students who had written to him asking for poetry uh, late in his life. And Alan always answered people and would write a, a yeah. poem and send it to them and maybe not even keep a copy for himself. Mm -hmm. And in this particular occasion, he was feeling tired, so he wrote back to them and wrote a poem. And in the poem, he said, you want more poems? Wait till I'm dead. So, so back, to, back to Jack now. He, um, I didn't know this. This stuff all went out of print. I think I bought the books when they came out, so I already had them. It wasn't an issue for me personally, but uh, that, I'm, I'm kind of astonished. Yeah, after his death, his wife, uh, his widow, didn't allow anything more to be published. And she uh, wasn't too interested in, in promoting his career. Uh, in fact, was a little embarrassed and maybe ashamed of, uh, of her late husband. So things went into a fallow period. And uh, it, wasn't, it was a good 10 years, 12 years later that things began to appear again. Uh, I think On the Road, I'm, no, I might be exaggerating that everything okay, was yeah, sure. well, On the Road yeah. might have still been in print, but nothing else. Nothing else. So if, if someone wanted to learn more about the Beats, this book here, this book by of, of Alan's, of you helping us sift through Alan, uh, Best Minds of My Generation, is a really fabulous book, I think, for hearing Alan talk about his poetics and his process and getting some information about the other guys, too. But what other couple of books would you recommend? And if they're yours, that's perfectly a good thing. <laughs> because you really know this stuff. 
Well, I think this book, The Best Minds of My Generation, is good if you're really interested in literature and writing and poetry. It's a little dense if you are just picking up a book and want to learn mm. about the Beat Generation. So there are several introductory books on the Beat Generation. Uh, I wrote a biography about Allen Ginsberg that uh, uh, something like that could help you understand his life and from that understand his poetry. The framework. Uh, I think I'm remembering Ann Charters impressed me as a, a, an overview of the story. Yes, she, she's done several books. She was the first person to write a biography about Jack Kerouac. Hmm. Uh, and a lot of her writing is still available in print, and those are good entry, entry yeah. points into the Beat Generation. And then just finding which of the Beat Generation writers you yeah. like, because they're right. all different. There's people yeah, who really. like William Burroughs certainly might not like Lawrence Ferlinghetti, <laughs> and you know Michael McClure doesn't fit into that scheme either, so you might like no, his. you're right. He's, he's, quite, he's quite different. Right. Well, Bill, this has been really good. I've, uh, I've had a very good time here talking to you and picking up some more tidbits. As I, I think I've mentioned to you before we turned on the microphone that I mean, I've read the story numerous times. So many people have just recounted the basic story, you know, and Alan went to college and he got kicked out and all that. But you've really got a lot of things in here that were new to me. And, and, as, and again, for poets out there, reading about Alan's, what he has to say about his process and his influences, that's really, that's great. And it's all in Alan's words. So I didn't add any words to it. I only removed duplication. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm Charlie Rossiter. This has been Poetry Spoken Here. We've been visiting with Bill Morgan and hearing about his recently released in paperback book, the Best Minds of My Generation, A Literary History of the Books. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter. Our feature today, Bill Morgan, archivist for Allen Ginsberg and some of the other beat writers. Now I'm going to take a look at another collection that Bill Morgan put together. It's Allen Ginsberg's uncollected poems called Wait Till I'm Dead. The title is from a short poem and is an example of the kind of juxtaposition from, uh, let's say, floating mental thoughts to direct reality that Bill was talking about during the interview. You know, Allen Ginsberg wrote a lot. And by 1997, at the time of his death, his collected poems, the latest edition, had reached over a thousand pages. But there were still more poems to be discovered, poems composed and never collected, some in letters to friends, some published, some not, some on scraps of paper. So it was a monstrous job that uh, Bill took on to uh, collect the best of the uncollected letters. Here's what he says about the selection of the text in his introduction. All of Ginsburg's most successful poems were attempts to capture his spontaneous thoughts and insights, what he called ordinary mind, composed in that way, in the act of catching himself thinking. It remained for me only to select the very best examples of his mind at work. This was achieved through careful reading and rereading of texts, whittling the mass down to these poems that best achieved that goal. If the mind is shapely, 
The art created by that mind would be shapely, was his creed. It also gave this editor the opportunity to re-examine every uncollected poem and select only the best from the entire span of his life, without regard to subject matter. So here we follow his creative genius, from his earliest political satire at the expense of his local congressman, Gordon Canfield, through his own, quote, on-the-road experiences worldwide. As noted, these poems cover Allen's entire career. They're presented chronologically from the 1940s through the 1990s. There's a photograph of Allen with each decade and a note uh, telling something about the photo, the context, how why it was taken. There are also very useful notes in the back of the book on the majority of poems, providing context and added information about the content and identity of people who are mentioned in the poems. I was interested to see there are a number of co-authored poems with uh, a number of poets beyond the usual suspects, of course, Gregory Corso and Jack Kerouac, but also co-authored poems with Rod Padgett, Ted Berrigan, Kenneth Koch, and a couple more, I believe. There's a three-page rhyming poem that Alan and Kenneth Koch spontaneously performed by alternating lines while in front of a live audience at St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York City. It's an extremely impressive accomplishment. There's also a 20-plus page travel poem. You know those kind of poems Alan would write where he'd take his tape recorder and just talk about what's passing the scene and what his mind was flipping to from here and there, and this poem is called New York to San Fran. It's a streaming, streaming description of thoughts and actions, including listening to airline audio and a trip to the restroom for chemical stimulation. Overall, it's obvious Bill accomplished a a, a marvelous large task by winnowing down these unpublished, uncollected works into a single book that's about 200 pages long and uh, I think any fan of Allen Ginsberg's will appreciate what you find between the covers here. It's uh, just a real accomplishment. So uh, glad we've had him as our feature on Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you and tell your friends we're here and Let poetry speak to them. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Munley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. 